Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. A warning before we start, today's episode contains references to suicide. Support is always available on Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is all I know. This is all I have. As much as we've loved each other, we've also fought and hated each other. We've never fitted together. We've never felt as one flesh. But this is my gift to you. Hi, I'm Paul Daly. I'm an author and a columnist and a feature writer for Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. Today I'm talking to the author Craig Sherborne. He's the author of the novel The Grass Hotel, which is about a man's complicated relationship with his mother as she nears the end of her life. Craig describes the novel as two-thirds autobiographical. Just like the woman in the book, he called his mother Heels after the shoes she always wore. Craig's own mother also had dementia. And he loved his mother, but also struggled to get along with her. I wanted to speak to Craig about what it means to care for someone as they lose their sense of reality, especially when they didn't always know how to show you warmth and affection. What was it like growing up as Craig? Who, who were you as a kid and a teenager? Well, I was an only child, um, and um, we lived uh, in a hotel. I was born in Sydney, in Randwick, but then as a baby we went to live in Hastings in New Zealand, which is in the Hawke's Bay, where my parents were publicans. So I lived in the flat, or the apartment, as my mother would call it, um, above the public bar, actually. So I heard, you know, it was pretty rough and ready. It was a working-class town, and it was pretty rough and ready. So it was very violent. Um, that was before security guards. So my father and a couple of his uh, barmen were the bouncers, and there were lots of gangs there, um, bikey gangs. So I just spent a lot of time by myself. Um, had one or two friends, but being an only child, you I think I find this in quite a few writers who have and poets and who have been only children. They you know they just become very self sufficient and independent and find a way into life through you know some through sport. For me, it was just through books and literature. From a very young age, precociously, although I didn't necessarily know, I didn't like reading children's books. But I found them a bit silly, but I liked from a young age reading adult books, even though I didn't have a clue what the sentences were. I just loved the music of the language. The French poet Rimbaud called it the music of the mind. I seemed to connect with that very quickly, and um, it appealed to my imagination. And I was a tall young boy with gapped teeth, and which we had fixed, my mother insisted on, and uh, big ears. And... Um, a mother who was, you know, a, a snob and and thought she deserved better in life, I think, and uh, went about as best she could trying to achieve a better life and a better life for me and a better life with my father. So we moved to Sydney when I was, I was about 10, going on 11, where I went to Ramick North Primary School. Uh, that was a whole new world, and I, I, I somewhat blossomed at that school. 
and did a lot of reading, played a lot of rugby. And uh, when I was a kid, we had a lot of animals. We had we had a little farm. We had my father was a um, a keen um, horseman, uh, uh, race horses. So we always had horses. The earliest memories of me riding horses and being with horses and um, these huge animals. Um, they were they fascinated me and I loved them and I seemed to be okay with them. They didn't want to kill me. Did you connect more with with horses than people? Do you think? Oh, very much so, and with animals generally. Um, I love birds, my dog, um, and uh, and I love my horse and love love horses. Always have and always will. It's um, it's the one constant in my life with literature. After all things go, relationships break down, parents die. Um, you find yourself alone again in the middle of a pandemic. You know, in the, on top of a mountain, the horses. And the animals and the birds are just, uh, I, I return to this kind of mysterious connection I have with them that I don't have uh, with very many people apart from my wife. That's it. Were you a lonely kid or did, did literature and, and animals fill in the gap? I think there was a period there I, I was terribly lonely and was always trying to fit in with, you know, your peers. But I found I really liked being around adults. And I had this thing where I had my parents had this little recording machine for reasons I can't really remember. I used to hide behind the sofa and record the adult conversations at night when they would all be having a drink and, you know, I'd, I'd go down. I'd either be um, in the public bar when it was closed and there was after hours drinking illegally or in the lounge bar where there was after hours drinking illegally and record conversations and uh, you know, you find out all the dirt on adults and they're much more interesting than children. So I really turned my back on children and um, and concentrated on adults if I had to be with people. <laughs> it, 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 it sounds like being a writer was inevitable for you in many ways. Well, I was hopeless at maths, terrible at science, and I think it was probably the one thing that I've heard some sports people talk about, you know, is from a very young age, as soon as they pick up a tennis racket or a golf club or whatever they go, Mm, this is for me. This is what I'm good at, and I just think when I picked up a pen, it was, it was like being um, at home, a home within a home, a deeper, more meaningful home. I love your description of what you're doing when you draw heavily on this um, on on the personal source material as an inside job. It's a it's a great line. Um, the the Grass Hotel seems to be the the classic inside job in that sense. I do inside jobs. That's quite true, and it's a good line. Um, but it wasn't meant to be a, a throwaway line because I think if, I've heard it said. I can't remember who said it. Um, all families regret having a writer born into the family. It is like having a spy in your house, and that's reality. I was born a spy. I do inside jobs. I don't go and do outside jobs on other people. I do it in my own house and which is you know confronting however it gives you a confidence that you are working somewhere as near what we might call non-religiously non-theologic theologically the truth about the human condition the human human what it is to be a human being in a particular place in a particular time when you were growing up you thought of your mum as heels because she was always wearing them. And uh, your dad, Twinkle, because of his salesman's glint. What was their relationship like? Well, my mum was in charge. She was the one who was the treasurer of the family, like that called the money strings. My mother, father was the ideas man, you know. Um, and so it was quite uh, – it wasn't necessarily traditional in that respect, but I didn't hear them have a damn good argument until 
later on in life when um, I think my mother had become quite unhappy and had some sort of problems that, you know, probably should have gone to a doctor about. But my father was always just, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. So he was very protective of my mother and it was loving their own way. They had separate beds, but they pushed the beds together. You know, it was like those old TV programs where you weren't allowed to show people in double beds on television. Well, they seem to have taken that to heart and they had separate beds in the one room. But I wouldn't describe it as terribly intimate, physically intimate relationship. You know, my mother used to dress up in those, um, at night, put lots of cream on her face and put toilet paper on her hair and clips in her hair to keep her, her do, which was this huge quaff of blonde dyed blonde sort of hair up in the bun. So I just remember all the smells of perfume and uh, brill cream, aftershave, which is quite pleasant sometimes, but sometimes becomes uh, a bit sickening. I remember being in the back of the car sometimes and it would all be blowing back in the back of the car because we didn't have air conditioning in cars those days. And I just would, you know, get car sick just from the smell of, of it all. But they stayed married right to the end, you know. I mean, they had their moments um, when, you know, I thought, oh, you know, maybe they're going to break up. Everybody else is breaking up. But they never did. And they stuck it out together through thick and thick. <laughs> yeah. Was she controlling as a, as a wife, as a mother? Um, yes. I think my, my father was reluctant to be terribly controlling. My mother um, was. She was a strong, proud woman and fierce um, and um, good qualities and um, and was in charge and, you know, didn't let anybody, man or woman, push her around. But with me and, you know, I suppose with some other people, if you didn't measure up, and I think it was clear that I wasn't sort of measuring up in some way, I think she always wanted a daughter and this was made clear to me. The daughter was going to be called Tracy. So instead of having a daughter that had me and then they had a got a little dash hound, which they called Tracy. <laughs> so um, horrible little bloody dog it was too. Yep, yep, yep. And didn't like me at all. Um, but um, she seemed to kind of almost resent the manly, as I became older, more and more manly. I wasn't an affectionate boy at all. And um, I wasn't feminine. She would have liked, you know, she couldn't take me shopping. She used to dress me up in clothes that were, you know, very feminine. And and as I became more, you know, grew into just myself, being a masculine fellow, she didn't really like that. I have a picture of her as, as someone who's very sort of self-possessed and glamorous. Is that is that fair? I mean, it's, um, you know, when... Uh, when she went to Sydney particularly, you know, she loved going to the races and dressing up to the nines. I mean, we have no idea. That was back when people wore mink coats and stuff, you know, um, even in Sydney, if you can believe it. Lots of pearls, lots of earrings, lots of gold, um, lots of diamonds. And um, it was an age of, this is the 70s, you know, it was sort of an age of letting yourself really be glamorous. So she saw herself as being a kind of duchess in a way, you know, sort of a bit superior mm. to others. She continued like that right through till 10 years before she died and she started to get sick and the body started failing and the desire to be looked at as a beautiful woman had well gone. She, she loved being looked at in a, as, as sort of beautiful. You make it clear that she made it clear to you that, that you were a disappointment to her. 
That, does that hurt to know that and to, to go through life with it? I inherited her stamina and stubbornness. That, no, it didn't really hurt. I just was at the end of her life when she restated it after my father's funeral that I found um, a bit, I thought, you know, that really sort of stuck in my gut for quite a while. But um, I seemed to yeah, just toss it off and get on with my own life because I had my own life set out for me. I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a writer and I knew that it wasn't in any way um, what either my parents would want to be. Not that they ever sort of said, don't do it. They just would shake their head at the idea, you know, um, because it was so foreign to them. They weren't great readers at all, really. So um, the answer to your question is no at the beginning, but yes at the end. Further to to that, Craig, Channeling Heels, you write in um, The Grass Hotel, you did not want children because you worried about our genes. You did not wish to carry on the flaws in us. You worried there'd be me in them just as you've carried me on in you. Is that your position as Craig in the actual world outside the novel? Yes, it is, actually. Um, It was an unexpected conversation when I got together with my wife, Janet, second wife, Janet, and we were in bed, and this is the beginning of the relationship, and she said, if you want to have a baby with me, we better get going now because she already had two from her previous partner who died, Philip Hodgins, the poet. And um, I, she said, yeah, we better hurry up now because, you know, my body clock's ticking. And I just didn't even have to think about it terribly long. I said, no, I don't want children. And she said, why not? And I said, I don't want to carry me on and what's in me, the genes on with me. Um, for whatever reason, and I couldn't quite articulate it then exactly why, but it took a lot of contemplation to actually get to the point where ah, it was that I really didn't want to carry on the genes of me and the flaws that I saw in me and in my mother. If I had a child and I could see myself in the child from a young age and my mother, what happens if I didn't like the child? What happens if I couldn't love it, him or her? I didn't have that instinct. So I felt a bit less, lesser of a human being, but um, I haven't regretted it at all. On the Grass Hotel, how challenging was it to find that voice and to channel the mother's, your mother's interior as she assessed you? It wasn't that hard because it seemed so much what my mother would say, you know. You were born with your hands in your pockets, your head hanging down from the soul up. That's what she would have said. And, that's, and so that, that just kept going, that, that rhythm of language, that music. Did it happen quickly? Well, no, the, the, the novel didn't. I mean, I'm a very slow writer. You know, I, like, I write with a pen. I'm not very interested in technology. So it's a slow process. But um, as soon as I got it, you, know, you were born with your hands in your pocket, the whole book started to take a, a shape. I knew where I was going. I knew what the end last line was going to be. But I did have... My mother's voice, I also had an experience. When she died, a couple of days after she died, I, I, I was living in Melbourne and I came back to Melbourne after her funeral and uh, um, there's a scene in the Grass Hotel which when I really thought she was there, she'd come down, from, she died in Queensland, come down, her smell, a whole experience of, in, in the book, 
I felt um, it was as if there was a presence there and I got quite scared, quite frightened. Cold sweat time. It was March and it was warm and then suddenly everything was cold. And um, I thought, well, she's here. Well, that's impossible. I don't believe in that kind of thing. But um, uh, that stuck with me. Being there for and caring for, if that's what you want to call it, someone who's who's old, who's who has dementia um, at the end of their lives is is really difficult and demanding. I know I've been there myself, but um, did it make you think about how if you live long enough, you want the end to be, how you want your life to finish? You know that line of Keats, I think it's Ode to Nightingale, many's the time I have been half in love with easeful death. I sort of want to be able to say, if I know that I, you know, if I have, a, if I get some warning, I want to be able to take my own life. I don't want anybody else to do it for me, um, and that's extremely complicated um, because, you know, how do you do that? Um, I wouldn't like my, you know, say it was my stepdaughters. I wouldn't want them to have to wipe my bum and to feed me. I suppose, like my mother, I'll end up in a home, and I hope I get treated well. And if I don't, I just have to suck it up because there's no alternative. I'm, you know, I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have other family apart from you know, my wife and two stepdaughters. And um, I hope I'm brave enough to be able to accept that. I know we're all squeamish about talking about this issue of suicide or taking one's own life or taking another life if you're doing it in a humane, for a humane reason. I think that that's preferable, but who knows? We just don't know. Was it was it something perhaps you might have wanted for your mother or, or wondered if she wanted for herself? Well, in the end she hated life. And, you know, I think you get to a point when you you hate life. When you hate life, it would be a blessing for someone to step in, maybe. But she, you know, she hated life, but she wanted to cling on to it. And I think that's a normal instinct. I, perhaps I'll feel like that. I We'll get to the point where my body's given in. I'm in so much pain. I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. I just hate everything around me and I'm sick of life. But um, my poor mother was ready for someone to step in, but nobody did. I wasn't going to. It's illegal. As much as we hate, we we, we spent our lives at war with each other, my mother and I. But I loved her. And I love her still. I loved her deeply. And... You know, she's, um, there's not a day I don't go by, a day that doesn't go by when I don't think about her, and she appears in my dreams often. But um, perhaps one day we'll reach a period of sophistication in our society as we get more and more, as, as we get older because of medicine, that we will no longer need to have the discussion about um, about um, uh you know, euthanasia. It just—it's something that's quite, quite natural within families to discuss and explore before um, the emergency happens. Thanks for listening to this episode of Book It In with Craig Sherborne. If this discussion is bringing up any issues for you, support is available twenty-four-seven at Lifeline. Please call one three double one one four. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's, it's, it's really interesting you talking about dreaming about the dead. Maybe that is, that is our equivalent of, of seeing the dead, of their, of their appearances. Have you have you done it? Yeah, I have. It happens to me often. Yeah, it happens to me a lot. And do they the people who appear um, in your dreams do they uh, do they look exactly like they were in life? My mother and father appear in my dreams to me as they were in my old house in Canberra. So so they're younger. And uh, but but my dog, my favourite dog Nari, she appears as she was just before she died. Right. With my horses, it's uh, my dogs. Um, like you, I dream about my dogs. My dog Tammy, particularly, she's exactly in, in her prime. My older dog Dutch, he died when he was twelve, and um, he's older and a bit wizened, you know, and crook. But my mother and father appear at all different ages, you know, even before. Like I've, I've dreamt about them as they were before I was born, because they're so young. I couldn't possibly have been born when they were courting, as they would have said. So they're different ages. And then also, too, when they're on their deathbed, you know, with me having to wipe my death bottom, which was the most humiliating thing for me, and even though he was bombed on morphine for him as well in the hospice, where they were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful. I know the medical you know, nursing homes and hospices and the, the, um, the hospital system gets a real whacking all the time by disgruntled people, but, you know, I can't speak highly enough of the nurses and the, and the doctors and the system that supported them. Craig, I'm just wondering, out of all of your experiences with your mother and through riding the Grass Hotel and caring for her, being there for her at the end of her life, what that taught you about, uh, about care, about the need for care? Oh, that, well, from a personal level, I was inadequate. I didn't do a good job. The, the I've seen other people in other families who do wonderful jobs with the elderly. They live with them to the to their, the end of their days. My mother was in a home there for I needed professionals, and I had nothing but the utmost respect for the way the professionals cared for her, and also um, cared for me when I didn't know what to do, and they had to make decisions for me, which is a hard thing for someone you don't know to step in and say. This is what you have to do. So what I learned was I was inadequate and I think if it happened again, I'd be better at it. I would have wanted her to have lived with me for a period of time, but she would have resisted, so probably that wouldn't have worked. But I hope that I have the same professional care that she got at the end of her life. Do you feel guilty about it? No. I, I felt terribly guilty at first, but now I, if you've lived, I've not led a sheltered life and I've always gone out and been adventurous and a risk taker and have made terrible decisions and have hurt people. You do, you're just inevitable, you know. And so you feel guilty about that, but I'm not going to dwell on it for the rest of my life because I know that that was the best it could be for her at that time, you know, and um, so no. No, I don't feel guilty. 
There are these really heartbreaking moments in the Grass Hotel with Heels and her son. When Twinkle, your dad, dies and when the son helps Heels dye her hair. When they go out to lunch and when the son does dressage for her down on the beach. But I still felt that ultimately there was more tenderness in the interactions between him and the animals. I think that's true. I mean, the, the, the ride, doing the dressage on the beach as a performance for his mother is a gift saying, this is all I know. This is all I have. I know I, I'm a terrible disappointment. I know as much as we've loved each other, we've also fought and hated each other. We've never fitted together. We've never felt as one flesh. But this is my gift to you out of love. And then the gift is so powerful because, yes, the greatest love he has is for this horse boy that he's riding. So to take that horse to a relatively dangerous location, risk it to show his mother this horse and what he can do, is, his, is the greatest gift he can offer because a kiss on the cheek isn't going to do it. Nothing like that. A hug isn't going to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost petty compared to this is him giving his whole soul for that moment and then taking it back because you have to take it back. You can't just give it and leave it there. You know, I felt like this was the point of maximum emotional tension between him and his mother because she resented the affection that he was able to give the animal that perhaps he couldn't give her. Exactly. She resented that, all right. I mean, he, this was a, a, as a boy, he had a, a secret way with horses, a secret way with dogs, a secret way with bees, for goodness sakes. He would come and, you know, not nest on him, but visit him, sit on his shoulders, wouldn't sting him. Um, and, uh, and I've known people like that. And I've had, to a certain degree, that kind of um, a relationship with, um, with birds and uh, with bees and with, um, but certainly with horses and dogs where you're able to, to have an affection with them and an int- intimacy you can't have with people, but also those animals can have an affection and intimacy with you that they can't have with other people, just you. The horse I used to own, uh, well, still do, but he's retired. He's um, to a lovely paddock with 12 other horses, a 100-acre paddock. He got to the point where it, it was just me. Anyone else wasn't interested in, just me. And that was wonderful. It's like being chosen, you know, to be chosen by a, a horse that has this, a brain the size of a lemon um, but has instinct like you wouldn't believe. They can smell trouble and they can smell harm and distrust. To then be given that acceptance is an enormous gift, you know, and um, a sense of um, love. You know, it breaks my heart even talking about it. I want to, you know. I'm not one for teariness, but it almost does, more so than talking about my parents. I'm more able to talk about parents or loved ones, fine with it, but talking about the animals um, affects me differently, more profoundly. So what can a horse or a dog tell you about yourself? They seem to know instinctively whether to trust you or not. They also seem to know what your flaws are, and they let you do things, you know, like pick up their feet to pick out their feet. These are 550-kilogram animals. And if they let you pick up their feet and they let you look in their mouth, you know, and they let you brush them and put a saddle on them and then ride them, 
It's more than just having a companion animal who sits in your lap or sits at your feet like a dog or cat might. It's having an animal that is accepting and allowing you to become what I think of as one structure, one physical structure of perfect grace, you know, where it says, okay, I, you come and I will, we will, I will allow you to ride and be in this pace with me. I will let you walk with me and then trot with me and then canter with me and then gallop with me and then turn this way and turn that way. And it's all done so subtly, often just with eyes or just a turn of the head or just a little flick of the little finger. And that's an enormous acceptance. On my own two legs, I've never had that in any other walk of life, any other um, place except on a horse's back. Hmm. Just um, finally, Craig, did your parents ever talk about you as the writer or read anything you'd written? Did you get any sense that they were proud of what you were doing? Yes, they did, but not to me. It was to other people. But um, I don't know if they had any sense of not the books that are written with them involved in the characters, but, yeah, I think they saw journalism as a, as a kind of, well, that's a normal job sort of thing. But um, poetry and all that's a bit airy-fairy, a bit flaky. So I think they sort of thought me thought of me as a bit flaky. But what they said to other people, I don't know. I think they probably were quite proud, but they would never have said that to me. Did they ever tell you they loved you? Was that something that was said in your family? Yeah, I think so, but it wasn't terribly convincing. I mean, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think it was sort of done to say, okay, so are you going to tell me you love me back? You know, it's like, it's like when somebody says, you know, um, I've always had, I've got this view of it, if somebody demands respect of you, they never intend to give it to you back. It's, it's just they want you under the thumb. So I think when it was said, it was like, now you're going to say you love me back? And that's going to make me feel good. And if you don't say it, then ah, oh, you know, you know, should never have said that to you in the first place. <laughs> so I never quite trusted that word um, in that relationship. Yeah, Craig, it's been, it's been fantastic chatting to you. Um, we we always ask whoever's in our conversation to recommend something that they've read lately or even a long time ago um, for for listeners. So if you wouldn't mind, I do. I have a book which um, I have carried with me for the last three years and it I read it while I was writing The Grass Hotel and it's the Australian poet Jan Owen's translation of Charles Baudelaire's selected poems, La Fleur de Mal particularly. It's the greatest translation of anything I have ever read and it is the most beautiful uh, interpretation, I suppose, in transla- using translation of Baudelaire's poetry, the great, you know, the great um, symbolist poet, French poet. So um, it may be not for um, all people, but you will be a better person for reading it. You will be a, you know, you know what we used to call when I was a kid, people would say, read an improving book. Well, this is the improving book you must read before you die. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Thank, thanks very much, Craig. It's been fantastic chatting to you. Lovely to talk to you, Paul. Good on you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Book It In. If this discussion is bringing up any issues for you, support is available 24-7 at Lifeline. Please call 131114. Craig Sherborne is the author of The Grass Hotel, published by Text Publishing. This episode was produced by Bethany Atkinson-Quinton, Alison Chan, Jane Lee and Daniel Simo. 
The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. I'm Paul Daly. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app. And tell your friends about us. It really helps us find more listeners. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading.